Let us worship God. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, saith the Lord Jesus, there am I in the midst of them. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto Thee that Thou art our God, that Thou hast called us to be Thy people and to serve Thee, and hast given us such great promises in Thy Word. Make us joyful, therefore, in our calling. Make us instrumental in the furthering of Thy kingdom, a help to all that need help, a strength to all those that need strength, and ever faithful servants of thy kingdom. Bless us now by thy word and by thy spirit, and grant that we may indeed behold wondrous things out of thy law. In Christ's name, amen. Our scripture this morning is Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, and our subject, the second commandment. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Over the centuries and into our time, there have been bitter disputes over the meaning of this, the second commandment. For many, both in ancient Israel as well as in the church, it has been a prohibition of all sculpture, paintings, and representations of anything whether religious in character or not. On the other hand, others have rejected this interpretation very strongly. Both sides have claimed orthodoxy. Both sides have sought to be faithful to Scripture. To look at the background of this, in the early church, in the post-apostolic era, there was a very strong hostility to all painting and sculpture. Art has always been essentially tied to religion, and for many converts, art meant paganism 
and occultism because that is what it was associated with in the Greco-Roman world. For a time, artists who were converted had to either abandon their vocation or renounce the making of any image in any form. A little later, in the post-apostolic era, images, paintings, and mosaics began to abound, began to be routine. There was a very extensive use of them and very often a veneration of them. Those who used images were no less zealous in their faith than the non-users, and their theology was basically the same. In assessing both these positions, it is important to understand the reason for their position and why it is necessary for us to condemn both sides. As we have seen, the great evil which the first commandment prohibits, among other things, this we went into last week, is the continuity between God and creation. The idea that all things are one being, and everyone has a little bit of God in him, and all the objects around us, sticks, stones, trees, Mountains, streams, all have a piece of God in them. The Greco-Roman world accepted the continuity of all being so that there was an inner link between the ultimate power or powers of all the universe and the world of men and things. Gordana Babic has observed, and I quote, judging by legends and lives of the saints, it would seem that pictures of Christ and the saints were mostly regarded by the common people as objects themselves imbued with supernatural powers, unquote. The logic in this position was, If any painted image or sculpture had a link with ultimate power because there was a continuity of being, then that linkage meant that the more you made it resemble the ultimate power, the more it became a concentration of that power. In other words, if there was a little bit of God in you, and a little bit of God in a piece of wood or a stone or a tree or a stream, if you did something to give a concentration, as it were, of that little bit of God in a rock by sculpture to indicate what the ultimate power was, then you are thereby concentrating the power. You are giving it a visual image. We often think of idolatry in naive terms, and of course, 
Isaiah uses the naive terms to ridicule the idolaters. But the sophisticated idolater, as in India, would tell you in showing a god with six hands, this is to indicate the omnipotence, the power of God. Or many eyes that he is all-seeing. Thus the image both attempted to convey a message and to depict in concentrated form something of the ultimate power. No pagan idolater equated his image with the totality of the power represented. Rather, he saw it as a focus concentrating some of the power locally. Idolatry thus had religious and philosophical roots. It always has had. It has always rested on an implicit pantheism, on an idea of the continuity of being. A man could have an image carved in the belief that like a lightning rod or even more consistently than a lightning rod it would localize an ultimate power the problem was that those who were iconoclasts shared this view and therefore opposed all images all pictures all art in Isaiah 44, 9 through 20, the futility and observ uh, absurdity of idols is bluntly stated. They are nothing, Isaiah says. The problem was that to many iconoclasts, as well as iconodules, they were something. Both those against and for believed they were something because they believed in a continuity of being, the logical end of which is pantheism. Because of this belief, rulers such as the Roman emperors, as soon as they gained power, sent their image throughout the empire to indicate who the current deputy on earth of the gods was. Emperors' portraits were venerated. Candles were lit before them. And accused persons fled to a portrait of the emperor for sanctuary. In part, the rise of icons of Christ and the saints was a challenge to this Roman imperial faith because those who advanced the Christian icons thereby expressed their belief that the icons of Christ and the saints are the focus of power. Hence, candles were lit to the Christian images. But as I indicated both sides were wrong, and no one can deal 
intelligently with his situation unless we recognize it rested on the continuity of being. It was John Calvin who made the clearest and most dramatic break with the whole concept of the continuity of being, a concept also known as the great chain of being. It had a profound influence over the centuries. It still does. But Calvin's writings clearly set forth God as the uncreated being, not to be confused or mixed with his creation with created being. Calvin wrote in the Institutes, and I quote, As in the preceding commandment, the Lord has declared himself to be the one God, besides whom no other deities ought to be imagined or worshipped. So in this he more clearly reveals his nature and the kind of worship with which he ought to be honored that we may not dare to form any carnal conception of him. The end, therefore, of this precept is that he will not have his legitimate worship profaned with superstitious rites. Wherefore, in a, in a word, he calls us off and wholly abstracts us from carnal observances, which our foolish minds are accustomed to devise, when they conceive of God according to the grossness of their own apprehensions, and thereby he calls us to the service which rightfully belongs to him, that is, the spiritual worship which he has instituted. He marks what is the grossest transgression of this kind, that is, external idolatry. And this precept consists of two parts. The first restrains us from licentiously daring to make God who is incomprehensible the subject of our senses, or to represent him under any visible form. The second prohibits us from paying religious adoration to any images. Unquote. It is very important that Cal to see that Calvin saw this commandment as related essentially to worship. It is about, he said, the kind of worship with which he ought to be honored, unquote. The three verses of this second commandment are one sentence. This one sentence has to do with worship and our representation of God. If taken generous, uh, generally, as some Hebrews did and some Christians have, it will then mean an abolition of all painting, sculpture, and photography. But such an interpre interpretation is absurd. God himself, in giving orders for the building of his sanctuary, required the making of the images of the cherubim, the brazen bull, carved pomegranates, and so on. They were not for worship, but to adorn his sanctuary for beauty and for glory, we are told. Calendelish observed, and I quote, It is not only evident from the context that the allusion is not to the making of images generally, but to the construction of figures of God as objects of religious reverence or worship. 
But this is expressly stated in verse 5, so that even Calvin observes that there is no necessity to refute what some have foolishly imagined, that sculpture and painting of every kind are condemned here. With the same aptness, Calvin uh, has just before observed that although Moses speaks of idols, there is no doubt that by implication he condemns all the forms of false worship which men have invented for themselves. Unquote. In other words, homemade gods of all kinds, material and intellectual, are forbidden, and all forms of false worship. Disobedience to this commandment and the practice of false worship means judgment unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Ellison has called attention to an important aspect of this phrase. Since the depression of the 1930s, which began among farmers in the 1920s, changes have taken place in family life in the United States. Education has been diluted and prolonged. Of course, this began with Horace Mann in the 19 or 1830s. In the 1930s, the idea was to keep people off the job market by raising the age of mandatory schooling. And it went from 12 and 14 to eight, 16 and 18 across the country. Many parents since see only their grandchildren at best, not the fourth generation. We marry later, we have children later, and the result is very destructive. In Israel, the third and fourth generation were those who were usually close at hand. Judgment for false worship and false doctrines of God, we are thereby told, affect the entire family therefore an entire culture very quickly. Then, as against this, we read in verse 6, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my generations, my uh, commandments. Now, this is a very important phrase which in the English we don't fully grasp because the reference is to generations unto the thousandth generation of them that love me. This is an amazing statement. It tells us that a culture that is begun in terms of the faith has consequences that will linger to the thousandth generation. In other words, godliness has enduring consequences, whereas ungodliness is very quickly destructive. We are still 
receiving the benefits from the early colonial era. No image can comprehend the meaning of God. Therefore, it is false on this ground. But the reason God gives for his prohibition here is, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, he says in verse 5. The stress is on God's exclusiveness. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, we are told, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. The Hebrew word jealous, which is here used, is very closely related, has the same root as the word zealous. There is no indecision nor any halfway measure in our God. The liberal conception of God is a wishy-washy one. But we are told by our Lord in Revelation that he will spew the Laodicean church out of his mouth because he tells them you are neither hot nor cold. And therefore, for their lukewarmness, he despises them. This is the meaning implicit in what God says when he is when he declares himself to be a jealous God. No lukewarmness in him. Because of this fact, God's order exacts penalties. Just as diseases can be transmitted in a family, so too can sin and its consequences be transmitted. A man who lays waste a family inheritance penalizes the succeeding generations. So, too, does a man who worships God falsely and holds erroneous beliefs. Josephus has an interesting comment on this commandment and on the first and third as well. He says in The Antiquity of the Jews, and I quote, the first commandment teaches us that there is but one God and that we ought to worship him only. The second commands us not to make the image of any living creature to worship it. The third, that we must not swear by God in a false matter. Unquote. Thus, Josephus saw the point of this. We were not to create any image or picture to worship. It did not mean a prohibition against any art. George Rawlinson, over a century ago, said that the Hebrew had this meaning also. Thou shalt not make to thee any graven image so as to worship it. Art is, as we saw at the beginning, essentially tied to religion. 
Many Christians in the early church rejected art because they saw it as pagan. The issue has never been resolved since then. Although art has been in the church, very often it has also been out of it. The crying need is to formulate a Christian doctrine of art and to see its implications for our faith. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank Thee that Thy word is truth. And we pray that Thou wouldst always increase our understanding of Thy word so that we may grow so that we may enable thy church and our culture to grow, that we might be mature in Jesus Christ. Grant us this, we beseech thee, in Christ's name. Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. How would you characterize the long history of... um, what are called miracle experiences with uh, uh, works of art in the church where statues bleed and tears flow and so forth? I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes it seems to be fraudulent. Other times there's a question mark. And I really don't know. There's more in this world than we know how to explain. But we cannot assert the continuity of being. That, I believe, is very clear. And we have to recognize that uh, this is what God says. And that we know. Beyond that, we go on learning. Yes. So when the reformers, at least a lot of the reformers in Switzerland and the British Isles went through busting up statues, that was because the statues happened to be used for worship, not because those statues happened to be of Christ and Mary and the rest of that stuff. No, uh, Tim, that's not altogether the case, because what happened was this. Both Calvin and Luther were against destroying the artwork in the church. Totally against it. But uh, for a moment, now I can't remember the name of the other Swiss reform. Zwingli. Zwingli was a real problem on the issue. He was a very talented musician who had a hostility once he was converted to his art as though it somehow rivaled Uh, his love of God. And it was Zwingli and others as well, but it's Zwingli's influence that we feel most in uh, our culture. Both the uh, two leaders, Calvin and Luther, opposed Anabaptists and others who went around trying to smash everything in the churches. But Zwingli not only abolished all painting and all sculpture, all artwork of any kind in the church, but organs and music totally. For three centuries, there was no music 
and the Zwinglian-influenced churches throughout Switzerland. The consequence was that Zwingli's influence, which came into England among the Congregationalists primarily and spread into other groups, Congregationalists were then known as Independents, led the Independents to go about and uh, destroy the artwork in churches. The influence of Zwingli is still strong among many, many people. And it's an irrational hatred of anything in the way of beauty. I know that Dr. Van Til said of the church across from the seminary, which was built under the influence of one such uh, theologian, uh, who unhappily was Scottish, uh, he said, they seem to believe there is a virtue in ugliness. <laughs> and I'm afraid with some people that's true. Yes. Of course, <clears throat> the destruction of all physical imagery leaves mental imagery undisturbed. Yes. And, and words, of course, are images. Yes. And constructs and concepts. And this had something to do with making God abstract and leading the gate open to the age of reason. Marvelous point. A superb point, And absolutely true. And the reason why the Jews uh, turned against it was because they were influenced by Greco-Roman culture. They were very heavily influenced. Very few people realize that at the time of our Lord, Jerusalem was a city that rivaled Rome because Rome poured money into it. It was a key place they wanted to keep Judea happy. It was a place of marble palaces, Greco-Roman baths, and more. And the people were heavily influenced, and they began to reflect these ideas. And you're very right. It turned God into an abstraction, which he is in Greco-Roman thought. As Van Til has said, in Greek thinking, God is merely a limiting concept. They needed him because they had to have, philosophically, some origin. So they posited God as a limiting concept and then dropped him. He was simply the point of... The, yes. And... Uh, this returned with the Enlightenment in some forms of deism. Yes, An another question? Yes. I suppose there's a connection in our own time between the fact that we are have departed from the commandments and the fact that this is an image-making generation in politics, films. Uh, Good point. 
Yes. We no longer have a Christian faith and a Christian view of images in any form. And as a result, we're replacing God and reality with images. And we live in terms of a world of images. Yes. At the same time, there is a campaign against Christian imagery. Yes. It's being removed everywhere. Yes. You can see how without an understanding of the basics of what God is, this commandment has been routinely misunderstood. And uh, when I've tried to explain its meaning to some people, their response is, well, brother, I don't need to know philosophy and theology. All I need is a plain word of God. As though God blesses ignorance. Any other questions or comments? folks were the late medieval popes yes, yes. were very heavily supportive of arts. Uh, the question is, the, 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 the Catholic religion itself seems to get very close to uh, uh, idolatry in, in, their, in their religion. Is this a misinterpretation on my part? Um, no, they do perpetuate what, uh, as I pointed out, were Roman practices, ancient Roman practices. And it rested on a belief in the continuity of being. And in some segments of the Catholic Church, uh, theologically, there still is a belief in the continuity of being. In others, there is not. I recall very vividly uh, a friend telling me of being in Paris when this Monsignor came in and the uh, uh, into this Catholic uh, shop and the uh, woman who was uh, managing it uh, showed him some of the little images they had just gotten in and aren't they marvelous and all have been blessed and he took his cane and struck them all off the table and shouted idolatry so you've had both strands there and you have both strands within Protestantism not as vocal with regard to painting and sculpture and seeking that kind of expression but having other images, verbal or mental, and sometimes pictorial. But the continuity of being is the key idea, and most of them don't know what it means, or the idea of the great chain of being. We only had one book ever written that dealt with the doctrine of the great chain of being by Lovejoy, who was favorable to it and traced it in art, especially literary art throughout the modern era.
Well, if there are no further questions or comments, let us conclude with prayer. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee that Thy Word is truth, and by Thy truth we are made whole. Grant that we move in faithfulness to Thee to bring every area of life into captivity to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.